Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. Dot com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So super exciting guest that we have today. He's done it so many times that I kind of like lost track, but uh, I think that you're going to find his journey quite inspiring, you know, building, scaling, financing, and all the above. So again, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alexander Asili. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. It's good to be here. So originally born in London, but raised in Beirut. So how was life growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. I was young, but I remember sandbags and tanks and hiding in basements when the bombs went off. My God. Yeah. But, 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 always, but always safe with the parents somehow. How old were you when, 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 the, when the war broke out? The war broke out the year I was born. Uh, and like many people... My parents thought the war would end every two months. And I just kept going until I was six or seven. And then when the Syrians and the Israelis invaded in 82, at that point, people started to get kidnapped. There was, there were just like, there were too many actors in the war. And we, we decided to leave and move back to London. And how do you think, I mean, obviously you were young, but I'm sure that, uh, I mean, you still, you know, have flashbacks and I'm, sh and I'm sure memories from, from that uh, difficult time. How do you think that that shaped who you are today and, and also dealing with, with uncertainty? That's an interesting question. I think it, it must have affected me in some deeper way. Um, a sense of urgency, a sense of needing to fix things at a kind of global level. I mean, I say at a global level, like at a societal level, like when, when you see a society crumbling and it's all around you in the stories that your family tells or that your family friends tell, I think somehow it impregnates you with a sense of urgency about, I got to do something with my life or I'm lucky to have the opportunities that I have. We'd never been uh, destitute as a family. You know, we were fortunate to have opportunities. We were able to get out. But my parents had always been involved with, you know, trying to fix Lebanon, trying to help with the refugees, trying to help with human rights and conflict resolution. So that stayed with me. 
And I think it drove a lot of the decisions I made later in life, probably. Now, in your end, you know, you started getting into engineering eventually, you know, because yeah. that's what you ended up studying uh, later on. I mean, how did you get into perhaps math or, or problem solving and things like that? I think I always like building things. And math and physics scared me for a long time because probably because concentrating on it uh, requires a level of focus that I didn't have for many years. Uh, and also probably a kind of bizarre, distorted perception of what it means to be an engineer. And, and so I, I traveled more through things like art and design initially, and then realized that things like physics and math and engineering were actually massive enablers to doing the things I wanted to do. And in the end, I think studying engineering empowered me not necessarily to be a good engineer, but to understand the capabilities of engineering so that I could then conceive initially products and then companies built off those products. So it's really just a engineering and engineering thinking and design thinking became tools for entrepreneurship rather than things that I actually did. You know what I mean? Now, on your end, I mean, we're talking about it after all that, um, you know, fortunate events in, in Beirut, in Lebanon, you know, you ended up moving to, to London and, and you were raised in London. I mean, in London, you have absolutely amazing universities, you know, also universities that they, you know, where you can get like engineering degrees and, and some of the best ones in the world, actually. So how do you end up thinking that California is the right next step, you know, for you? I think, look, I think the universities are terrific in the UK. I think they were already terrific in 1993 when I left. But you've got to consider that the world that we see today with best practices, with the internet, educating people, almost bringing the level up globally amongst academic institutions and people as a, people generally, that didn't really exist in 93. There was a bit more traditionalism in the way that people taught, in the way that universities thought about engineering and entrepreneurship. And even in the case of American universities, a place like Stanford was quite unique. That's not to say that that's the reason I went. I think the main reason I went was probably a desire to get away from traditional, structured, approaches to things which I felt a little bit hindered by in the UK. You know, I didn't want to run away from my family. I didn't particularly want to run away from my friends or even the country. But I did feel like California had this form of liberty that I couldn't find in the UK. And that ended up being true, right? It ended up being true that I could put forward ideas, whether it was in class or eventually in companies, in California that would have been, that would have had me laugh out of meetings in Europe, perhaps even on the East Coast of the US. In some cases, I was laughed out of meetings in California, but, but as a whole, the, the Silicon Valley, the Californian atmosphere was one of possibility. Well, especially in Stanford where you landed and where you did your undergrad and also your graduate degree. So, I mean, the land of innovation, you know, that's for sure. Now, let's talk about innovation here and about ideas. Let's talk about that moment where the idea of Joe Bone 
you know, hits you? I mean, we're all, uh, you know, I, I, I don't believe that there's any idea that someone may have for almost any company or any product that doesn't feed off moments of inspiration or even just formed ideas from others, right? In my case, it was a combination of studying design, studying the design of mobile devices in my coursework at Stanford, speaking to people from industry, speaking to professors, and observing the trajectory of where mobile phones were going, and in a sense, where mobile computing was going. And this would have been around 1997, 98. And the insight wasn't like, looking back on it, it's not like some extraordinary insight. The insight was pretty simple. It's like, as we become more mobile, which is, it seems like a very natural trajectory, right? People want more liberty. They want more freedom. They want to move around. Mobile phones are already pretty established there. People were moving from analog to digital phones in 98. The insight was quite simple. If you want real liberty, you're going to need to have something on your head. You're going to need to have a headset. And you look, you look like a bit of a fool if you're going to walk around the street with a boom for a microphone. That was basically the idea. More so than that, there was a sense of possibility around what could happen if you design these things well. So we set about thinking, what if we could design a headset that had really good voice quality? That was really the key thing, voice quality. And we were naive enough to think that we could do something and have a breakthrough, right? We didn't know what we didn't know. This is a classic example, I think, of where there's a form of there's a form, again, of freedom in being young and naive in that you don't really limit yourself from potential innovations because you haven't built up enough knowledge to convince yourself out of things. And that's how we started. You know, and we went around and we tried to raise money. It took us about a year, year and a half to try to convince people to raise money. We licensed technology from... Um, a research, a government research lab called Lawrence Livermore Labs, which was in the East Bay, um, which was really about using uh, non-acoustic sensors to pick up vocal cord vibrations. And then we leveraged that to raise money. And then we leveraged that technology also to, to create a breakthrough voice processing capability. And that was really the beginning. What ended up being the breakthrough for the company? Because as you were alluding to, you know, it was tough to raise money at the beginning. Uh, obviously, it became easier as you were generating tons of cash. But at what point do you guys turn the corner? I mean, what kind of business model was that? What were you guys selling and, and were, what, what did the company look like? That's a great question because at the beginning, we were thinking to ourselves, okay, so we've created, so we, so look, let me take, take a step back. The breakthrough that we had on a technology basis, which we subsequently called Noise Assassin, which was a noise suppression technology for mobile phones and for headset. Essentially, it allowed you to make calls from noisy places. We're familiar with these technologies now, and a lot of the patents that we ended up filing, those innovations are now in things like AirPods and Samsung headsets and Google headsets. 
the technology has become widespread now. We set the standard because what we said is if you add two microphones and some other forms of processing technology, you can do a lot more. And we created one of the first really big breakthroughs on that. So the natural thing to do when you're a small company of seven people, there's not a lot of money to raise. This was in the nuclear winter, you might call it, of tech of 2001, 2002, 2003, where everyone just went home and there wasn't a lot of funding. The natural thing to think is we should license to headset manufacturers. And, and we met with everyone. We met with Nokia. We met with Motorola. We met with Plantronics. We met with a lot of the incumbents. And what ended up happening, we were like, the offers that we got were just not worth it. They just did, they wanted the tech, but they didn't want to pay us for it. So we were forced, ironically, we were forced to consider building our own product. And that's when the idea of building a whole product, which became the Jawbone product, came into being. And building a whole product means you're not just building this core technology, you're conceiving of a whole experience. You're designing it, you're branding it, you're marketing it, you're selling it. You're having to get a whole bunch of things right, like gross margins and operating margins, contribution margins, all these complicated things. And the first time we did that in 2004, we missed five. We created a headset that somehow proved the point but wasn't successful commercially. And then, and then in 2006, we launched a Bluetooth headset, which was staggeringly successful, basically, because we got the formula right. And we had just been thinking for so long, perhaps along this kind of 10,000 hours kind of view, we've been thinking for so long about the optimal experience of headsets, voice quality, comfort, look and feel, user interface, that we just got it right. And, and I think going back to one of the points you brought up earlier, Deep tech in 2001, 2002, no one wanted to invest in that. Well, people wanted to invest even less in consumer hardware in that period. So it was really hard for us to raise money. And we, we managed to convince a few brave investors, literally a hodgepodge of not even particularly experienced tech angels from around the world, some in the UK, some in the US, some from the Middle East. And we didn't even raise that much. I mean, we were really scrambling along in that, in that period of time. But they invested in us and we got through to the other side. And then we started printing cash, as I, I like to call it, because it's very rare when you launch a product in, 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 in the tech industry that you make so much profit, you literally don't know what to do with it. We were shipping within, I think within six to 12 months of launching this, we were doing 150 million run rate. Wow. With 50% margins. We were shipping 10 to 20,000 of these a month. We couldn't produce enough. I mean, it was just, right? And, and of course, at that point, venture capital firms that we respected and we loved, who had, who had previously turned us down because they didn't understand this, these business models. They didn't understand hardware. I mean, in a sense, the only company that had succeeded and at the time wasn't, you know, was, was rebuilding its, its, its legacy was Apple, right, with the iPod. At that time, but other, what other companies can we think of? So, Apple was the exception that proved the rule that consumer hardware is tough. So people didn't want to touch it. And then, of course, when we started making money, they're like, "Well, we'd be insane to not invest in this company." 
And of course, we then brought those investors in and we raised, you know, lots of money in a short amount of time. Because uh, all in all, through the life cycle of the business, how much did the company raise prior to the acquisition? We've got to think about the, the fundraising in, in sort of various stages. We, prior to 2010, we probably raised 35 million from Coastal Ventures and Sequoia. Then when we launched the Bluetooth speakers in 2010, I can't remember exactly what the number is, but we, we, we raised somewhere around 50 million from Andreessen Horowitz. And that allowed us to kind of grow and expand internationally and build new products. And then we raised a little bit more after that and we expanded into wearables. So we expanded into wrist-worn trackers. We were the first wrist-worn fitness tracker on the market. What that ended up doing, though, is, was stretching the company. So the company was never acquired. The company got a big investment from BlackRock in 2015. This is right after I left. And it was, to some extent, you, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's a big secret that one of the reasons I left was because I didn't necessarily love the direction the company was going in. Hmm. It's not clear to me that I would have done a better job, but at the time I was non-exec chairman, I was living in London. So, but there was really a push at that, in that period to say the opportunity for Jawbone is not in audio devices like headsets and speakers. The opportunity is in fitness and in health. And I think there were some good justifications for that. It ended up not being the case. It ended up being the case that that business wasn't executed well enough. And then the company ended up being sold in bits a couple of years later. Right. Um, so that's the more or less the trajectory. But, you know, look, I think, I think we had a peak revenue of 350 million at one point in 2012, 2013. Right. I can't remember exactly what the numbers are. It's something around that. That's unbelievable. Now, now, Obviously, you were at the company for about 16 years, almost 17 years. I'm sure it was quite painful to, uh, to turn page. Yeah, really hard. But you also learn a lesson, I think, from all of it, that companies are not babies. I don't believe yeah. companies are babies. And I think they become less and less. I think that, I think that it becomes more and more problematic to think of them like babies as you grow bigger, as you bring on bigger investors and more capital, you have to shake this slump, somewhat naive and childish notion that as a founder, you have a right that goes beyond your role as an executive or as a board member. And, and actually, in many ways, you need to go above and beyond that, that attachment and think of yourself as someone who's held to a higher standard. Yeah. And I think that was a breakthrough for me. Probably after after I moved back to London was this kind of realization like I love this company. I had a big role to play in bringing these products to market and in creating this brand. But people have put, you know, 100 million towards this company. It's a serious business, we need to recruit serious people and in some cases I'm not the right person to 
drive things. So um, if I could go back, I would do a whole bunch of things differently. But um, yeah, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a big believer, perhaps somewhat cynically now, in the idea that companies are babies. I think they're just companies. I hear you on that, you know, but I find that uh, ultimately when you're a first-time founder, you think that you are your business and you become emotionally attached on all levels to your own business. And unfortunately, you know, that's what happens typically for first-time founders and something that we all go through as entrepreneurs, no? It's just uh, a bunch of cycles. And, uh, you know, one saying there's going to be a moment where that page, you know, needs to be turned. Now, in your case, when that page was turned, there were two things that you started pushing. One was the creation of your family office. That's the Sulu Group, where you're getting involved with companies and making investments there. And then the other one was, you know, being part of a board, you know, that was doing, you know, some interesting stuff, packs and jewels. So, so tell us what was the experience there. I mean, the company at the peak was like forty billion or so, but uh, I'm sure that was, uh, you know, quite the dynamics and and a ton of complexity when it comes to really thinking strategy on a very complex segment. I think one of the reasons I moved back to London was to get closer to family, to reconnect with my British, European, Middle Eastern roots. At a professional level, I wanted to shift my attention to a, just a different type of product, a set of products, right? Uh, I, I love the things we've done at Jawbone, but I wanted to work on things that were more impactful. And that's one of the reasons why I started investing in you know, impact-led companies, for-profit, but impact-led, whether it's pro-society, pro-women, pro-climate. The PAX Jewel episode was an interesting, it was an interesting scenario for me because um, I thought the founders were very talented. They were also Stanford guys. I thought they were very good product designers. And some of the early investors, in fact, one early investor in particular became a good friend. And because I'd had this very natural, because I was a very natural fit for the company, um, being one of very few consumer products guys in the Valley, um, I was invited to come and help. And, and I think one of the things that's not seen very often in these stories is the underlying mission of these, of these, of some of these founders. And I, I, I guess at a high level, I was attracted to the idea of, of removing the smoke from the smoking. So how can we deliver people the social, the social benefit of smoking, whether it was smoking marijuana or smoking tobacco, but in a form that was not carcinogenic um, and that ultimately was going to be a tremendous advance on, in a sense, a very shitty product, which was cigarettes. Yeah. Um, that being said, the extent of my interest in that company had always been to be an advisor and a, and a board member and not to go beyond, even though there were a lot of temptations to do that because it was obviously doing very well. And I think what's interesting is when you look at companies like this from the outside, and Jewel, you know, as you said, Jewel became a very big company, right? It became, I mean, one of the top two, three companies in terms of revenue 
private companies in terms of revenue in Silicon Valley. It's a huge company. And my view from the inside was, here's a bunch of smart people trying to do the right thing. And the reason I'm here is because I want to help do the right thing. But there are certain products and there are certain industries where it doesn't really matter what you do. And it doesn't matter what your intentions are. If the winds blow in the wrong direction, you're just going to sweat, get swept up in, in some sort of scapegoating or some kind of mega trend against nicotine or against vaping or whatever. And that's essentially what happened to Jewel. Um, and it was a lesson for me in that, you know, you can sit there and kind of, oh, and I've been, people have tried to interview me. I've heard so many journalists reach out. They tell us the story because you're on the board and you got deposed and we saw your emails and all this sort of stuff. It's a pointless task, but it's too nuanced to say smoking rates have fallen off. You know, oncologists are reporting that lower rates of lung cancer because people are smoking less. And weighing that against a perception, a very fair perception, a very fair worry that teenage vaping has gone out of control. It's just not a, it's, you, you can't win that. Even though there's logic in it, you can't win that argument. And, um, it's not to say that I'm not happy to talk to you about it or to someone over tea or coffee or a dinner, but it's not, it, it requires a level of maturity that, uh, that doesn't exist in public discourse, except funny enough in like a podcast dialogue where you can actually get into the details. And I don't think even in this podcast, we'll have time to really dig into the details. Um, of, of, a, of a topic of that complexity. But, you know, look, the product was a great product and people liked it and it stopped people from smoking. And it's insane. They're like, I always find it's insane. Like, there's just amusing things that happened along the way. Like, San Francisco, the city of San Francisco banned Juul, but not cigarettes. So you can walk into a shop and you can no longer buy Juul, but you could still buy a product that we had known for 30 years was carcinogenic and a hundred times worse for you than the vape. Some, sometimes you never know in, in a market like this, you know, it could be lobbying, it could be like God knows, but ultimately, you know, like, you know, it's just trying to innovate in those markets that are really complex. And ultimately, not only you have the uncertainty of building and scaling something, but then also doing it in a very complex uh, regulated environment. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So, I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you 
And that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. In your case, one thing that uh, that you did too, that was starting State, which was your next uh, company. Now you guys had a you know good initial run there, but eventually you know you decided to pull the plug. So you went from a massive success of a company to all of a sudden you know one where more than the success was the lesson learned that you took with you. What was that lesson that you learned with State, and what were you guys doing there? To say it was 10 years too early and it was the wrong product. So it was like two things were wrong. The intent was good. We wanted to create a social network for opinions. We wanted to link. We wanted to link people through shared view viewpoints as well as opposing view, viewpoints rather than existing social connections. So it was a there was good intent. It was we wanted to build in a sense uh the town square in a much more in a much more deliberate way in a way that had would, would have a clear outcome aggregate opinions understand what the spectrum of opinion is on a particular topic but you know in 2012 people were like super jazzed about twitter and super jazzed about facebook and snapchat was coming out and it was just People were not conscious of the issues that led to that idea. That was the first problem. The second problem was, I said, by the way, we, we, we still had like a couple hundred thousand users. I mean, we had a great community, but it was like people who got it, just a very rarefied group of people. And it didn't, it wasn't enough to power a whole social network. That's the first one. The other problem was the product was too complicated. Like it, it was a real lesson for me. And just because I created a, a successful product in hardware doesn't mean I can go off and build a successful consumer software company. Um, but, you know, the, the amusing thing there is it's now 10 years later and a whole bunch of old users and, and team members are reaching out and saying, hey, let's, let's resurrect it. Let's fix the product problems and resurrect it because the world's ready. You know? I think the chances of me resurrecting it are pretty slim, but I think it's a just it's a reminder that um, when you start a company, you want to be honest with yourself about the journey you're taking. Not all startups are the same; they don't have the same level of risk. You know, if you come out and you start a better file storage business, for example, the product mechanics around that are pretty well understood. The technologies behind it are pretty well understood. You might have a feature that makes you stand out against your competition, but you're not reinventing seven different things. I mean, you know this. You've started companies of your own. Um, starting a new business, it's essentially saying there's a whole world that no one's ever thought about over here, and I need to educate you about it and build the product. and. and it's it's just it's exciting. It motivated a lot of great people to come work with us. But it's just it's a different scale of risk. Yeah. And I think that I wouldn't go I love the experience. We loved it. But it 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 has taught me a lot in terms of how I invest, 
in terms of the kind of companies I get involved with now, whether as an advisor or board member or as an investor, you have to be honest about what is that list of risks and how likely is it that this team will knock off that 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 list one by one, the, the items on that list one by one. You know, you look, you learn as you go along with these things. You, know, and I, well, I, you, I, you always do. You always do. And uh, you were able to also share, you know, some of those lessons that you learned, you know, throughout your journey. When you received a phone call from Tania to get going with Elvi. So what was that like? Because, I mean, it sounds like... Uh, she really benefited from those lessons, you know, that uh, you had learned in your own journey. And she went from zero to incredible founder in just two years alone. So well, what, what happened there? So, so you have to just imagine what's happening in 2012, 13. Like everyone's like, oh, it's all about wearables. And there's like these almost like there's this like there's onion headlines, like making fun of the wearables craze and of course jawbone had been in the center of that craze with initially its headset and then the wristband but you you may remember that in those in, the, in that period there was also a google glass came out you know remember that yeah. weird headset they came out with which was like probably a you know again 10 years too soon and not necessarily very good um so there was a craze around wearables. So I, as as being a kind of wearables consumer products guy, I got so much inbound, right? I very naturally, and I generally just turn turn these things down for the for the simple reason that wearables are really hard because not only do you have to create the thing, but you have to convince people to put it on their body, which is just like finding a seriously uphill battle against human nature, like. You know, I'm excited for the Apple Vision Pro, but it 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 it's not clear that it's going to win against human nature, which is I don't want shit on my face. So at the time, Tanya reached out to me through a friend who she'd been in college with. She was at Oxford, and she was a, a mutual friend of ours. Said, "Hey, you meet, you got to meet a very smart friend of mine. She was, she did masters at Stanford in public health, and she's got this fun idea. I, I don't understand it, but she wants to get in touch. So she got in touch. She says, "Hey, fifth. 50% of the world population is women. Of those, more than 50% suffer from pelvic floor weakness. And I want to create an, an, a device that they insert into their vagina that helps them retrain their pelvic floor. And I'm like, okay, this sounds like completely nuts and super risky. Um, Thank you, but no thank you. And then I actually, I went off to think about it for a week or two, and it kept on coming back. I'm like, that's a big opportunity, and no one's really building products for women. I like the angle. I like the angle of engineers build stuff for other engineers, and engineers tend to be men. And, and although there's a lot of beautiful products out there built by men, generally speaking, consumer products are male. They just they have a male thing about them. So I came back to her, I said, okay, let's give it a go. And this is, the interesting thing is that Tanya had, had really never been in business. She'd been in academia, she'd done a PhD, she, she was super smart, but she'd never really been in business. And on top of that, she never started a business. She didn't, she didn't understand 
gross margins and like fundamentals of how you build a consumer product. Anyway, we reached an understanding. I said, listen, I'll help you do this. Let's set up this company together. And the incredible thing in her case was she went from knowing very little to being a phenomenal founder CEO in a couple of years. And we launched that product and it was really well received. And then we went on the back of that to build you know, the first silent wearable breast pump, which, which is ultimately a product that's gone on to do even better than that first product. Um, I don't know what else I can say about that company. It's, it's, a, it's a company that benefited from a lot of the lessons uh, of Jawbone. Um, but, you know, women's health tech and, and that space has its own set of dynamics, some of which are better, some of which are worse than and obviously, incredible, incredible success. They've raised, they at least publicly, I see over 150 million. They have like 240 employees or maybe more. And then they are like at about 100 million or so in revenue. So remarkable journey, Elvi. Now, one of the things that, uh, I mean, you, you haven't stopped. You haven't stopped eh? because uh, you also have been doing stuff for Lillian, you know, when it comes to SPACs. So you were part of that, uh, you know, craziness of the SPAC movement. So. What were you doing there and uh, how did you get involved and, and tell us about this whole SPAC, you know, uh, thing going? Yeah, Lilium is an unusual one, but it, it, it falls into the category of insanely cool products. Even if it's a plane, it's still a product. Um, I met the founder, Daniel, who's a brilliant engineer, unbelievably dedicated to his mission. And had pretty good like business instincts. I met him in 2016 with Nicholas Zenstrom, who's a friend and who's the founder of um, he was the founder of Skype and then the founder of Atomico, which is a venture fund you may know. Yep. And he calls me up. He said, "Hey, this talented aerospace engineer is coming to see, well, founder is coming to see us. I don't know much about hardware. Can you come in and see and let's look at it together?" And we looked at it together. I said, "Listen, we've got to do this," and so we did it. We just love the ambition of building a fully electric vertical takeoff and landing jet aircraft, not just an aircraft, a jet aircraft, electric jets, 30 engines, 30 electric engines. This thing looks like a private jet. It has four wings. It takes off and lands vertically. Just like insanely cool. So my kind of childish engineer persona kind of came shining through at that point i was like let's do it so we invested we joined the board and and, and i sort of helped them through that journey at various times um mostly in a, in in the most part as a non-exec for a few years raising money telling the story thinking about how to connect with tech investors and so on and then it, and then of course you start to like with every company you realize there's a bunch of stuff you don't know. And one of the things people don't appreciate about, about aerospace, but particularly about in aerospace innovation, is that it takes a long time and it requires huge amounts of capital. It's also like at an engineering level, it's, it's sort of engineering and, and, and certification. So safety, the, the safety rules imply that what you're doing is I don't know, 10 times harder than building a car. 
right? It's really, really hard because you got to, this thing can never fall out of the sky. It has to work. And it has to work every time. They have a saying, which is first, right first time, right every time. So move fast to break things is not the philosophy in aerospace. What that implies is you have to raise a lot of money because you have to have hundreds of super smart, talented engineers who built engines before, built landing gear, built wings, worked with carbon fiber, worked with aerostructures and everything in between, and avionics, all this complexity. You've got to weave them all together, and then you've got to give yourself five, six, seven years to get it out. And so in 2020, we all looked at ourselves, we're like, guys, we have to go and raise like minimum $500 million. So we have a chance of getting to the next big milestone. And so I talked to the board and they said, hey, can you jump in and help do this with us? And this was in the middle of COVID. So I said, well, if we can do it all over Zoom, this is actually kind of optimal for me and maybe we can make something happen. So that's what we did. And and it became clear quite quickly that the only likely way of raising that echelon of capital was going to be through a merger with a SPAC, which, of course, as everyone knows now, was in vogue in those days. And now, of course, it's not in vogue. But in those days, that was a way of raising that kind of capital. And so we went out, we told the story, we met with a bunch of SPAC, we hired banks. And in uh, March, of 2021, we announced the deal to merge with a SPAC that was set up with, set up by the former president of GM, a terrific guy called Barry Engel, who had raised several hundred million dollars through a SPAC. And then we raised additional capital in what's called a pipe, which is like this extra chunk of capital you do at the same time. And then we de so we went public on the NASDAQ in uh, September of 21. And I think in total, we raised, uh, including a follow-on, we raised $700 million or something. My God. What a journey. What a journey, Alexander. So I have to ask you now a question. You know, I, I want to put you into a time machine. And I want to bring you back in time. I want to bring, bring you back in time to that moment that you were still in Stanford. And you were there, you know, getting your undergrad and having ideas and, you know, thinking about a world where you could bring those ideas to life. And let's say you were able to just sit down next to that younger self and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think the primary one would be that all problems are people problems. If you're struggling with something, whether it's sales or firmware or business development or supply chain, there's typically someone out there who finds it easy and who's much, much better and more experienced than you are. And it is only through a combination of ego and arrogance and laziness that we don't go and find those people because we think to ourselves like, oh, how hard can it be? And I think I made that mistake again and again and again. I think fundamentally through hubris like oh you know um, how hard is marketing or how hard is negotiating a supply chain contract um so that 
that kind of autonomy and self-sufficiency helps to some extent as an entrepreneur. But you can't really build anything of substance without hiring phenomenal people. And we did. Of course, we found phenomenal people in some areas. But I wish someone had come whispered in my ear and said, hey, hire a really good head of HR now. And then map out the problems that you have, the challenges that you have, and how those map into roles and eventually into people. And I think that, I, I, I think looking back on it, I probably approached it in a, just a way more ham-fisted way, which is like, oh my God, like, what are we going to do? Let's pull an all-nighter to try and figure out how to do this. When in fact, we should have sat down and be like, who can help us solve it? Contractor, consultant, advisor, or full-time hire. And let's actually let's try to build teams that solve problems rather than just force it through through working long hours and, and beating our heads against the wall. So that's the first one. It's people is everything. I mean, look, this is not new, right? Jack Welsh famously said the most important hire after the CEO is the head of HR, VP of HR, which really is the person who partners with the CEO to locate talent and apply that talent to the problems that are most important to the business. The second thing I would say, and this is particularly an entrepreneurial hint, is just keep going, but not because perseverance for its own sake is worth it. I don't believe that. I think that sometimes you're just like, <laughs> this idea doesn't fucking work. Like, stop and do something else. <laughs> right. right? Sometimes you have to just be like, draw the line. That's the maturity that comes later. That's what I mean by the baby thing, right? But to the extent that you believe there's a there there, that you believe that there's a, a real opportunity, which is what we felt in the darkest, the deepest, darkest depths of jawbone and eating like fried rice for the 10th week running in Southern China, trying to get the first product out. You know, In the back of my head, I was like, this is worth it because I know this product's going to work. Okay, so to the extent you believe it's going to work, perseverance is huge because the thing in my mind that defines breakthrough companies and products is the fact that no one else believes in it. If everyone believes in it, then it can't be that breakthrough. It's obvious at that point. And this is one of these weird reverse psychology. It's not even reverse psychology. It's a complex psychological phenomenon for entrepreneurs to kind of digest because when they go and meet with investors or they meet with their friends their friends are inculcated with the prevailing view and the prevailing view is oh well everyone knows that's not possible or haven't you seen what microsoft just did or did you not know that google just built an r&d center just to do this so you got this stuff, but all the all the signals that you're getting are telling you that what you're doing is is slightly insane. Rather than interpret that as a sign to quit, it should be interpreted as a sign to keep going. Because every product that's that's been a breakthrough ultimately followed that path. I mean, look at all of them. Twitter, you know. Twitter, Apple, uh, 
you just go through the list. Google launched, there were like six search engines out. And if I look back at the moments where the, the seminal moments, the critical moments in those journeys that I had, it was the moments I trusted my instincts about art. It's really interesting looking back on it. I was like, God, it wasn't when I was like arguing with people or defending myself at some conference. It was when I was like, one step in front of the other, trust it's going to happen because you're seeing something that other people don't see. Wow. That's a super profound, super profound. Thank you so much for sharing that. And for the people that are listening that are, you know, now like, my God, you know, I would love to reach out and say hi. You know, what is the, what is the best way for them to do so? Probably via email. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Well, easy enough. Well, hey, Alexander, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Alejandro, thank you for the great questions and for the opportunity to tell some of these anecdotes. I hope they were helpful. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.